2 Kings chapter 13, and we left off in verse 6 last week, in the middle, of course, as time fails us sometimes. So I'd like you to look back in verse 5, and I want to read verse 5 and then verse 6, because that gives us an understanding about the response of the children of Israel to what God did for them. 2 Kings chapter 13, and look with me in verse 5, where it said, And the Lord gave Israel a Savior so that they went out from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before time. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. And that's where we left off. And we noticed that Israel... They, that's the pronoun used here, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. Now, while you're there, look back in verse 2. And this is what is said about Jehoash, or Joash the king. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So the chapter starts off by telling us that Jehoahaz, I'm sorry I said Jehoash, Jehoahaz, he, that pronoun, he did that which was evil. He followed the sins of Jeroboam. And in verse 6, it says about Israel, nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam. So the sins of the king were an individual thing as we began the chapter, but they've become a national thing here in verse 6. It's gone from the king, he, to Israel, they. And they tells us simply that Israel followed what the king did. The king followed what Jeroboam the son of Nebat did even though their king knew this was evil, and even though the children of Israel knew that following the king as he followed Jeroboam was also evil, they did it anyway. And this is why we don't follow, or we're not supposed to follow, the religious teachings of a man. And I think many of you in here and who are watching online could testify they've fallen prey to that. I have too. In my study of God's Word over the last 28 years, that's about how long I've been teaching the Bible, I've read a lot of books by gifted and intelligent Bible teachers. These men were all very intelligent, much more so than I was. And sometimes the things written in those books helped me greatly in understanding a difficult scripture a passage, perhaps even a doctrine. And other times, those teachings caused me to err in my doctrine, in my understanding. But God's Word has never led me astray, not one time. Even when I didn't understand something the first time I read through it, or the 20th time I read through it, sometimes that happens, I'll read it, do it again, come back tomorrow, try it again. And it takes a while to get through this rock. 
but no Bible verse has ever caused me to go astray, and no Bible verse has ever caused me to teach heresy. It would be a misunderstanding of it or a misapplication of it that would lead to that. And whatever the doctrine was, it was always the fault of man, whether it was me or a combination of me and the person after whom I read. It was the fault of man that caused the teaching of the doctrine to be bad, to have a defect in it. Now, the children of Israel have fallen to the Syrians until God sent them a Savior, but they have fallen, and it's not because of God's word that they fell. God's word never caused the children of Israel to fall if they obeyed it. They didn't fall because the word of God was confusing to them. For had they sought to understand it, God had a prophet, Elisha, whose voice has been silent for some time now, and others who could have rightly divided the word of truth and said, here's what this means. But it's obvious to us that that wasn't important to them either. It was just easier to do what the king did. The reason they fell is because they despised God's word. And they love the world more than they love their creator. And that's the case then and now. Now look in the text in verse 6. We're in 2 Kings 13, chapter 13, verse 6, if you just joined us. And I'll read the entire verse. Nevertheless, they departed not from the sins of the house of Jeroboam who made Israel to sin, but walked therein. That means they walked in the sins of Jeroboam. And there remained the grove also in Samaria. Now let's look for a moment at this phrase, but walked therein, particularly at the word walked. And the word walked here, as in the New Testament, doesn't mean only with the feet. Now that's the image we get. We all walked from our cars into the building and walked perhaps from one building to the other. We do that all the time. But spiritually speaking, a person's walk is greater than just the footsteps they take. It is a manner of life. Your walk is your manner of doing something. And it also carries the meaning of following the walk of another person, following that person's footsteps. Jesus teaches us somewhat about that in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19. Matthew 4 and verse 19, and I want you to listen to, for the word follow. He was speaking to his disciples, and he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, if you think about what Jesus said there, was the mere act of getting behind Jesus physically and walking wherever he went, was that all that was necessary to make his disciples fishers of men? No. It would help if they went where he went, but to follow him, they had to follow his teachings. They had to tell people what Jesus told people. And that's essentially what we do when we teach the Bible, is we tell you what God told us. And then explain it. And while the, the, 
disciples physically followed Jesus much of the time, there was a greater meaning to the word follow, just as there is to the word walked in our text. Here's an example again when children play follow the leader. The leader may hop or skip or run, walk slowly, turn circles, do a somersault. And the children behind the leader aren't just going where the leader goes, but they're also trying to do what the leader does. That's the whole point of the game. So can you imagine if some children were following another child and that child was the leader? And so the leader was skipping. And he looked back and saw one of the followers just walking real slowly wherever everyone else was skipping. He might say, hey, you're not doing it right. You're not playing the game right. Now, Jesus' earthly life was only about 33 years. And we weren't there, were we? Not physically. None of us were there. Yet, we're to follow him. Not physically by staying behind him, but by doing what he did, teaching what he taught. He preached the gospel of peace, so we're to preach the gospel of peace. And in doing that, we're following him. So when the children of Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, They weren't physically walking behind them because he'd been dead for a long time. But they were doing what he did. And that's the way to view this term, walked, or this phrase, but walked therein, in the Bible. The children of Israel in Jehoahaz's day were not alive when Jeroboam was king over Israel. But the Bible says Jehoahaz followed the sins of Jeroboam, and he did after that manner, and so did the people. Now, the two phrases we just looked at, depart not from the sins of Jeroboam, but walked therein, those go hand in hand, don't they? If you don't depart from a sin, then you will walk in that sin. In the person of Christ, a Christian has departed from sin. Because Christ never sinned, so we who are in him spiritually are without sin. The problem is we still live in the flesh. We occupy this fleshly body. And in the flesh, a Christian cannot say, I have ceased to walk from sin. Now, there are some holiness movements in this world that say that you arrive at that certain perfection at some point. Well, that's a lie. John the Apostle wrote... If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We lie. And though this new spiritual man we have when we are in Christ, when you're a Christian, you have a new spiritual man. You're not dead anymore in trespasses and sins. You're alive through Jesus Christ our Lord. And although we're... a in a spirit, we're in a physical body. That's new spiritual man, that new spiritual woman you are when you're a Christian has a great influence on your flesh. It should. It had a great influence on your flesh this morning. If you're a Christian and you came to church this morning instead of staying home or going fishing or doing whatever else you could have done, then 
the spiritual man had an influence on you. It said, go to the Lord's house and learn the Bible a little bit more. And go and sing some songs of praise and encourage other Christians and uh, try to reach out to the lost and give your tithes and offerings and all the things that you're led by the Spirit to do. But even though the spiritual man has that great influence on our physical man, on our flesh, sin is going to be our constant foe until our bodies are redeemed when Jesus gathers his church unto himself. And if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about here, about that sin being your constant enemy. We have a sin nature that wants to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, just like these people did. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. If you're taking notes, you may write that down. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7. Paul told the Christians, these are Christians at Colossae, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked, past tense, sometime when ye lived in them. In that passage in Colossians, those sins that were named were the sinner's life before they came to Christ. They walked in them because they lived in them. It was the most natural thing for them to do. What is more natural than for a sinner who's lost to walk in sin? Why, that's just as easy as breathing, isn't it? If somebody tells me that an unbeliever curses and gets drunk and beats his wife and, or cheats on her husband or steals from the job, it doesn't surprise me. I don't like it. It's one of the reasons I have the job I have in the secular world. But it doesn't surprise me. It says in that same chapter in Colossians, back up in verses 2 through 4, it's Colossians 3 verses 2 through 4, it draws a distinction between those whose life was sin and those who were believers, those whose life is Christ. And it says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. So the Colossians, to whom Paul was writing, who had once walked in fornication, uncleanness, evil concupiscence, inordinate affection and covetousness, which is idolatry. They once lived in them. That was once their life. And what kind of life was that? That was one that leads to death. But their life is now in Christ. Does it mean their flesh will never do any of those things again? No, it doesn't. But the command is given to stop it. Stop it how? In the power of the Holy Spirit. Because you can't do it yourself. If you say, oh, I'm just going to will myself not to do that today. That won't work very long. If you say, Lord, I, this flesh can't beat the devil. We admit that. I need your help today. This hour to obey what your word says. To walk 
as though my life is in Christ and Christ is my life. So it's hard enough as a believer to walk being led by the Spirit of God. Can you imagine a person who is an unbeliever trying to do that? They can't. They absolutely can't. And in fact, when they reject the gospel, they are telling you, I will not. I do not want to. It's not important enough to me. It sounds good. Oh, I kind of wish I could do that. But it's not important to me. Just like it wasn't important to the children of Israel to stop walking in the sins of Jeroboam and to start walking according to the commandments of God. Now let's step back and look at a larger, even larger spiritual truth that we can glean from the response of these wicked people. A sinful king, Jehoahaz, has led a sinful people, Israel. And therefore, they were overcome by their enemies, the Syrians. The sinful king besought the Lord. We studied that. He went to the Lord in prayer. The sinful king besought the Lord who gave them a Savior to deliver them from their enemies. And in response to that deliverance... The king and his people departed not from their sin, but walked therein. John chapter 3, verses 18 through 19, while you are very familiar with John three sixteen, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son in the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Listen to the next two verses. Verses 18 and 19. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. The light that came into the world in that passage is the Lord Jesus Christ. John testified of him in John chapter 1, saying that he was that light, meaning Jesus was that light. The light that came into the world, the one that gives life to all men. And that light came into the world. He was sent by God, but just as the Savior was sent by God to Israel to deliver them from the hand of the Syrians, in both cases, those who made the choice to accept and love darkness rather than light were condemned. Israel was condemned, uh, not spiritually speaking necessarily, but in, in that uh, Syria became their boss. God delivered them. And instead of saying, oh, Lord, you've delivered us, thank you, we're going to walk in your commandments, they said, well, we're going to keep doing what we were doing. Now we just don't have to worry about the Syrians. Bad mistake. God sent a deliverer and freed the children of Israel from bondage. And they chose to live in bondage to sin nevertheless. And that's what happens when people reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Brother Fulton was preaching yesterday, I was sitting in the very back back there and yeah, I get to see the backs of people's heads and what they're doing, which I really rather not do. But at one point during one of the 
points of the gospel message, there was a fellow going like that. So he heard the gospel, and that head nod or that head shaking indicated his disagreement with what was preached. And so, if that is the case with that particular person, I pray that he would reconsider, that he'd repent. But if he does not, then he is the same as these who, for whom light came into the world, and yet he chooses to remain in his condemnation by his unbelief. Now, the children of Israel in Jehoahaz's day the ones who are being talked about here, the ones who did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam could no way claim that Christ was their life, that they lived in him. No, their claim was that the sins of Jeroboam were their life, that they lived in them. They departed not from them. They walked therein. And now one of the outward results of that walk is found in the next part of this verse, still in verse 6. Where it says at the end, and there remained the grove also in Samaria. Nobody ever stepped forward to take it down. It was left standing. If you think the devil will leave you alone, if you just leave the grove standing, you are mistaken. He's a hunter. Peter wrote that the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking, you hear that word, seeking whom he may devour. He's a seeker. He's not a sitter. He doesn't sit back in a, in a hole and wait for something to come by and just go like that. Oh, he's seeking. He's out laying traps, throwing stumbling blocks, spreading heresy, and he's not going to leave you alone. And you can't just leave him alone as it were. He is in your face. And the Bible says to resist the devil and he will flee from you. And how do you resist him? By going, boy, I feel strong today. No, not at all. It's in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's not ten of the strongest men in the world together who could move Satan one inch. Not at all. Has nothing to do with physical strength, might, or power. It's a spiritual thing. Don't forget that Satan was once that anointed cherubim Lucifer in heaven. And if man thinks he's more powerful than Satan, he's got another thing coming. And allowing this grove to remain in Samaria was just an outgrowth of the people not departing from the sins of Jeroboam. Now verse 7, this speaking of the Lord, neither did he leave of the people to Jehoahaz but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by threshing. Now you may ask, why would God deliver Israel, yet in that deliverance allow all but 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen 
to be destroyed. Everyone besides them was destroyed. Why would God do that? Well, it was pretty clear in studying the verses leading up to this that in their own power and in their own might, Israel sought to exercise their will rather than depending on God's power and might. And at that last minute, Jehoahaz besought the Lord and said, Oh, we need a Savior. God sent a Savior. And the people said, All right, well, we're going to stick with the sins that got us in trouble in the first place, but thanks for the deliverance today. That's kind of how that happened. And in leaving Jehoahaz, only these few soldiers and very few chariots. God is sending a message, and he's done it before. He did it with Gideon's army when he pared it down to 300. He's sending a message that it's by his power and his alone that they were delivered, not by theirs. And it won't be by their power that they are delivered, for who would be afraid of an army with only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 footmen, when there are armies of hundreds of thousands in uh, each of those categories waiting to conquer Israel. Psalm 66, verse 3. Psalm 66, verse 3 says, Say unto God, how terrible, that means fearful, it doesn't mean he did a bad job. How terrible art thou in thy works. Through the greatness of thy power shall thine enemies submit themselves unto thee. Through the greatness of thy power, of God's power, Syria was no longer over Israel. God let them wipe out all of those soldiers, footmen, horsemen, except for the few that remained. And then he put a stop to it. He put his hand over it. That's enough. Not one more will be taken. And it said, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and had made them like the dust by threshing. This shows us another truth. Satan can only destroy that which God allows. If a person was struggling with accepting the truth about the gospel, let's say that person believed the gospel. They say, I, I believe Jesus died for my sins. I'm just not sure if I can remain saved, if Satan can't get to me somehow. You know, there are people who have those struggles. They don't believe there's some other way to be saved. They just say, you know, I, I, Satan attacks me every day. How do I know he can't get my salvation? For the same reason that not all of the footmen and not all of the horsemen and not all of the chariots were destroyed. Satan cannot destroy that which God commands him not to. He, God puts a stop sign up and that's it. Satan can't go around it. He'd love to. But even he acknowledges that he cannot exceed God's power, that which he coveted in heaven once. And in being withheld from completely destroying Israel's army, the Syrian king demonstrated, he showed us his inferiority to the Lord. He was less than God but he was more powerful than Israel. And that's the same way Satan is. Satan is more powerful than all of the people and all of the nations who've ever lived and all of the angels who were under his command. But he's not more powerful than God. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, shows us that Satan is a destroyer, but he's limited in what he may destroy. Here's what Paul wrote to that church. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Now that was the sin. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. So this was a Christian who had committed a sin by sleeping with his stepmother. For I verily as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together in my spirit with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Did you hear that? Paul said, we all consent to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul did not say, I want this sinning Christian, this one who will not accept rebuke, who has committed this sin, I want his salvation to be reversed. Paul would never have done that. He'd have reversed his own salvation before he would have done that for someone else, and he couldn't do that either. He said, I want to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Satan's a destroyer. That the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So even in, even though, let's just think about this image. Paul saying, this guy, his flesh is rotten. And it has caused some problems in this church. Here you go, Satan. Well, on the other end, don't you know Satan would love to say, I'll take not only his flesh, but his spirit. And God said, nope, you're not taking his spirit. That man is a Christian. His flesh is no good. It's rotten. And so is yours and mine, by the way. No good. And that's why it's going to die. That's why it is dying. That's why all of those infirmities that just pile on us and pile on us finally take us to the grave, some earlier and some later. But even in all of that, in that corruption, God says to the Satan, you don't get the Christian. You don't get his spirit. What's the absolutely worst thing Satan can do to a Christian? Destroy the flesh. That's it. In the Corinthian passage, Paul gives us this image. And I'm a visual person. If you are, you're, you're picturing that perhaps. He's handing his flesh over and saying, you can't have his spirit. And Paul's not more powerful than God, but Satan knows that because of God, he can't have his spirit. He knows the gospel. Boy, he knows the gospel. He just didn't believe it. He puts it away from him. He wishes it weren't true. After all, what good is the flesh in the end? It's going to return to dust, isn't it? It's going to meet with the same end as the unbeliever's flesh. You know, when I was in the private business... I had a, a government agency for whom I did work out in Grand Saline. Did you know there were government agencies in Grand Saline? There are. And I would take my lunch break, and I'd go out to the cemetery 
and drive to the back of the cemetery and eat my lunch. And, of course, everybody I know, including my wife, thought I was batty for that. But it was so peaceful. And I'm not afraid of a cemetery. Some people say, oh, ghost. I'm not afraid of a cemetery. You know what there are in a cemetery other than the, the tombstones and all that? There are a bunch of dead bodies. Some of them have been dead longer than others. Some died sooner in life than others. But there are nothing but dead bodies and tombstones and graves and caskets and beautiful trees and birds and quiet, which is what I needed at that time on my lunch break. Some of those bodies in that cemetery belong to Christians. And some of those bodies belong to unbelievers. But the flesh of everyone in those graves met the same end, didn't it? Destruction and ultimately dust. The undertaker can put all kind of stuff in you, on you, and around you. But ultimately, that body is going to turn to dust. And that's why we don't put our hope in some pill or food or surgery that will stave off death. It's not going to work. You might live a few years longer. Uh, if you didn't get to hear the message yesterday, I encourage you to go back and listen to it about the sorrows that accompany life after you turn 70, sometimes before then, but when you hit your 80s and all those things start piling up. We can't stave off death. There's nothing that's going to allow these bodies to live forever. And let me tell you, I don't want this body to live forever. It's prone to sin. How would you like that? For all eternity, to live in a body that's prone to sin. You welcome death. I'm not in a hurry for it. But when it happens, I, I know where I'm going to be. It's not worth hoping for that prolonging the life of the flesh on and on and on. And hoping for this sort of thing alone is the carnal type of thing that Israel would have done. And it's what they did. It's what Jehoahaz did. He said, Lord, spare us from death one more time. That's what he besought the Lord for, wasn't it? He didn't go in repentance and say, Lord, we have sinned and done wickedly. I repent. I'm going to follow your commandments. And from now on, the word of God is going to be what rules the land. He didn't do that. He wanted his physical life to be prolonged just a little while longer. Look at verse 8. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Now, although this epitaph is just like that of many of the other, well, all of the other wicked kings of Israel and Judah. We might point something out here on this one. You see the two words, his might, mainly the word his, his might. The historical writings about this king and many of the other kings probably say a lot about his abilities. You know, there are plenty of historical writings outside of the Bible. The world's full of them. And we learn a lot from them. They're not Scripture. But we learn a lot about what was going on during the times of these kings and society and government and, and all of that. And perhaps those writings that are about the might, his might, Jehovah has his might. Perhaps they give him credit for this battle that we read about 
how he defeated the Syrians. But the text tells us there are chronicles written about his might. So that's a guarantee that somewhere somebody wrote about Jehoahaz's might. You all know my fondness for reading obituaries. Not afraid of death, not afraid about what obituaries say. They don't creep me out. They're very instructive. And most of them, the longer they are, the sadder they are to me. They're about the accomplishments of the deceased person and his might, her might. All of the things written about you in your obituary may be informative. They may be tragic. Maybe they're funny, sometimes even comforting. But none of the things written about your might in that obituary are valuable from a spiritual standpoint. They're not. Your college degrees, your sports championships, how good a rodeo cowboy you were, your positions of leadership in social organizations and so on, do not build up your resume when it comes to eternal life. And sometimes I feel like that's what those obituaries are. They're that long, and boy, I've already told you why mine's not going to be that long, right? First of all, I hadn't done that much, but second of all, they charge by the word. Somebody please remember that. But it's almost like a resume that the family or whoever prepares it is handing up to God and saying, just to remind you of all the things that this person's done, his might. And you know what God may as well do with all that? Just put it in the shredder. That's, his, that's all it's good for, spiritually speaking. There are even religious ceremonies that are performed after a person dies. And those ceremonies are done for the stated purpose of somehow enhancing that dead person's spiritual standing before God. The silliest notion I've ever seen. But the people who do it are mighty serious about it. The rosary for the dead is one of those practices that's done by the Catholic Church. In fact, here is a quote from one of their publications. It's called The Catholic Stand. And it says this about praying the rosary for the dead. It said, let us remember that prayers can be extremely powerful in assisting the souls of our loved ones in their journey to attaining eternal life and peace. This is after they're dead. In other words, by the might of the one who is praying, the soul in that purgatory that they've come up with can somehow attain eternal life. So the Catholics believe that their prayer for the dead is what makes the difference for the dead person when it comes to eternal life. How arrogant is that? But 1 John 5.11 says this. 1 John 5.11 And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Who gave me eternal life? Those who are going to pray for me after I die? No. 
It was God and is God who gives eternal life. And John said, further, that life is in his son, not in the prayers of the people who pray for you at some kind of rosary or other religious gathering to try to enhance your standing with God. He that believeth is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. And you take that last breath, whatever your standing was with God, that's it. It's final. But the might, his might, as with Jehoahaz, it was written about after he died. And people sure depend on their might to make up the hedge. The Catholics hold 1st and 2nd Maccabees as scripture. Those books are contained in the Apocrypha, which was found in the King James translation originally but they've been taken out. We do not recognize them as Scripture. One of the reasons is, from something I'll read you, however, this is still something upon which the Catholics base their practices because they consider this Holy Scripture. It's found in 2 Maccabees 12, 44 through 45. I'm not going to repeat it because you don't need to write it down. Don't, don't read the book. You're going to get confused if you do. It said this about Judas Maccabeus after the after a war, and his might was said to have been used to grant these dead soldiers eternal life. That, that alone is why we don't have it in Scripture. That's not scriptural. It said this about Judas Maccabeus, for if he were not expecting that those who had fallen would rise again, it would have been superfluous and foolish to pray for the dead. But if he was looking to the splendid reward that is laid up for those who fall asleep in godliness, it was a holy and pious thought. Therefore, he made atonement for the dead that they might be delivered from their sin. That is foolishness. He made a sacrifice for those soldiers who had already died so that they could be delivered from their sin. If they weren't delivered from their sin by faith in the coming Savior, then they weren't delivered from their sin. Not by might, not by the might of man. How presumptuous is it that a man would try to make atonement for one who's dead, supposing he could reverse that man's condemnation. And relying on man's might, heralding, proclaiming man's might, is what leads the Catholic Church to pray for the dead. And for those who read of Jehoahaz's might, Many have sought to do as he did. But those who are the Lord's, we wish to read about his might. We depend on his might when it comes to man or any other thing. And of all the things, I don't care whether I have an obituary or not, but if I do, if anything's said about my accomplishments, I want it to be what God did through me. And if that means it's that long, so be it. In Galatians chapter 2, you know what? We ran out of time. I had to stop in the middle of a sentence, and that's all right. We'll pick it back up next week. Let's pray. Father, it's been good to be in your house this morning to study your word, to learn from it. And Father, these truths are exciting, comforting, and also they warn us about man depending on his might. So may we, if we've come in depending on our own might, 
repent, turn to you, and trust in your might and your power to do the things through us that are pleasing. In Jesus' name, amen.